Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Cinematic Underdogs. And this is a hybrid release with Cows in the Field. So recently I was honored to be welcomed onto the always excellent Cows in the Field podcast that is co-hosted by Justin and Laura Koop. And they welcomed me to debate the philosophical and narrative merits of the 2020 film Another Round. We're releasing it right now because another round is twice nominated for uh, Oscars this season. It is up for best picture for a foreign film and for best director. It is a film about drinking, but there are some sports elements in it. First and foremost, we have one of our four teachers who is a PE coach and who really uh, encourages one of his young boys who is much more shy and timid to step out of his shell and he ends up scoring a goal in a soccer game, which is one of the really endearing moments in the film. It also starts with a drinking competition in which a bunch of high schoolers run along a lake drinking, doing some interesting Danish ritual that is very competitive and in which the winner gets to collect all the bottles to go return to the store for a recycling tax refund, which is actually can be pretty lucrative. And so those are two isolated incidents that are both least obliquely related to sports. Also, the film is about the sport of drinking. And why I say that is it really is about the thresholds and limitations of drinking and the way that we can approach drinking as a challenge or as something that is a give and take. It's a struggle that can both lift us up, but also bear weight on our lives and bring us down. And so, yes, that's metaphorical. And if we extend the definition of sport to anything that can be competitive or dealing with struggle, we can literally include every single film in the pantheon of the uh, history of cinema. But I'm going to make that excuse today because this is a great uh, conversation and it's relevant and topical and it would be fun to include this audience as well on cinematic underdogs who might not know that this is out there if it's only on cows in the field. So uh, without further ado, here is a very lenient sports film and I hope you enjoy. So what's going on here? Where where are we? We are talking about a movie called Another Round today and um, it's by Thomas Vinterberg and we have we're, we're, there are three of us in this room now, and I feel like we should all get on the mic and introduce ourselves. So, uh, Paul, do you want to start? Sure, yeah. Um, thanks, first of all, for having me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so super humbled to be here. Um, I'm Paul Keelan. I am the co-host of Cinematic Underdogs. It's a genre podcast. Basically... My best friend, we were born six days apart on the same street, and I've always been doing things together, whether it's playing in bands together or um, writing similar types of things, or all, just we're always engaged in the same stuff. And we're living apart, and we were like wanting to do something that would connect both of us. He's really into sports. I'm more into movies, so sports movies, that's, that's basically the marriage it came to. And uh, it's been fun. I'm not the most traditional or orthodox sports fan lover like it's one of the genres that i would usually like not pay that much attention to in the past but i'm glad to sort of regenerate my love for it because it's very much like a nostalgic genre so yeah that's basically my story 
in terms of the podcast well, world. We so uh, I'm Justin and uh, one of the co-hosts of Cows in the Field. I'm Laura. And Laura, what are you? I'm another co-host there of Cows go. in the That's Field. That's right. We're from Cows in the Field. You got to remember because we're we're all going to get mixed together in the ether here. Uh, okay. But Paul, we are really happy that we're doing this and that you're here with us today. Um, uh, and that we get to talk about a non-sports movie. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's the lake drinking game. There's also co there's competitive so. drinking in this movie. So uh, And uh, don't forget the awesome soccer match. Soccer too. match. That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Tommy on the soccer field. Oh, with um, Specs. So, so yeah, we're talking. Specs is really cute. That's so. right. Specs is a very cute. Might be the MVP of the movie for me. Um, so we're talking about another round by Thomas Vinterberg. This is a this movie came out in 2020 and it is currently nominated for best foreign language film at the Oscars this year, which is one of the reasons, one of several reasons why we wanted to talk about it. Uh, today, in particular, getting ready for Oscar season. Um, but another reason we wanted to talk about it was um, that, so Laura and I watched this movie, I don't know, five, seven, a week ago or so. And, uh, and you know, we, we were a bit underwhelmed and, and Laura, Laura had some criticisms and, and we talked a little bit about it. And I had some issues with the movie and, and um, I don't know, I wrote my Letterboxd review and I was like, it was a little bit harsher than I think I normally would write a letterbox review. And then Paul, you commented on it because I think I think you did enjoy the movie. I, I don't want to speak for you here, but and 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 you kind of hinted like, hey, maybe this could be a fun episode that we could get together and disagree about a movie, which which I think is great. And I am really excited to to get into it. But I, I, that was the other reason for doing this. Um, yeah, on point. Yeah. And one of the interesting things was I had just written like my review, which was kind of a raving review because that ending is just such a feel good, yeah. triumphant mm -hmm. ending. Yeah. Even if you probably didn't like the movie, that last five minutes is it's just so euphoric. And I wrote it right away. It was like on the moment. And nice. then I read yours like 20 minutes later oh and God. it very much <laughs> it sobered me oh, unattended no. but like brought me dead down from my oh, intoxication no. from the film um but oh, in a good way it's just a bummer I, i'm very sorry paul i did I, there was no intention on uh, to, to to make anyone you know question their love of this movie and and i do not want to do that today i in fact i should say at the outset although i will you know articulate my own issues and why i mean part of the reasons i'm not or at least on the time was not particularly excited about the movie um i uh you know i think there's quite a bit to like about the movie and and we'll talk about some of the things about it that i think are are really fun um and i do not by any means want anyone listening to think like oh no justin is such an asshole for not liking the movie i liked and and, and you as well Paul. i don't want you to think that so and our minds are not set either. Of course. You know? yes. like we can, you might totally win us over, Paul. Yes. Equally so. Like I thought you had a really cogent take. So it made me reflect and kind of reevaluate the film. And I've been thinking about it a lot more than I would have been. So I mean, that's, yeah. Likewise. No, likewise. Yeah. Because because I was like, oh, you know, Paul Paul has a very different read on this. And, um, um, and, and actually, I should say, Paul, you, you are not alone in that. Um, Pretty much everyone uh, that I follow on Letterboxd who watched this movie uh, was not just positive, but but actually quite quite overwhelmingly positive. I mean, it's I don't think anyone gave it below three or three and a half stars. So it, so it's very you know very highly regarded by people who I like to read on Letterboxd. So I I really think that you know my 
opinion here is is somewhat of a minority one. Yeah, a brave minority one. Though. That's why I respected it so much. <laughs> Fair enough. So, Paul, let's start with you. So, um, say a little bit about what the movie sort of is about, like what transpires in the movie. It follows four teachers. Uh, we can get into who they are. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I'm not usually the best synopsis person, but because I like to kind of paint broad a picture of the film and more about the philosophical elements. But getting down to the basic overview, it's four teachers who are in a rut. They're kind of in a middle age, midlife malaise. And that crisis propels them to um, on the basically off the cuff in a depressive state at a dinner party. Um, one of these four members, Martin, played by Mads Mickelson, decides uh, after drinking a few drinks that he is going to uh, start drinking a lot. And it was spurred on by his friends, peer pressure. And one of his friends, which is um, Nicola? Nicola, Nicola yeah. Yeah, Nicola, yeah. yeah. Nicola, okay. Uh, so Nicola has this... Uh, quote that he references which is a danish psychologist slash philosopher i'm yeah, not too know. familiar with the person who actually quoted this and there's much speculation of actually this is really tied to anyone um i've seen different takes but it's this idea it's quite humorous uh that we were born with a deficit in our uh alcoholic blood levels uh, blood alcoholic levels and it's 0.05 correct yeah yeah, so it's the idea though is really that they want to keep a steady buzz to elevate their life. What I liked about it was it eliminated traditional moral principles as they are put on you from the uh, outside. And it decided to take a subjective and first person approach to something that is considered taboo mm -hmm. and in doing so, they are exploring and self-experimenting with alcohol to see if they can function, if it actually can make their life better, and to balance that out. And they are also school teachers, so it comes with some normal dramatic beats of uh, politics of drinking at school or being drunk in the classroom at a high school. And it enters a little bit of melodramatic territory as well, which I think we'll more agree in that realm of the film on our takes, but ultimately it's an interesting approach. It's very European in the mm -hmm. sense that uh, if it was American, it, I feel like it would just be a sort of moral cautionary tale about drinking, but this totally, is much yeah. more nuanced approach. I mean, actually on the, on the European thing. So one of the like background, I don't know, recurring themes that seems inextricable from what, you know, the, 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 this overall idea of having the 0.05, blood alcohol level is this weird sort of as you know th there's this kind of obsession with danish culture and nationalism lurking in the background so they're always singing the danish national anthem and it's always like pointed out that the the kids are they're doing these they're these like traditions in, in danish culture it seems like these drinking traditions uh, they, you know, everyone seems like there's some, there's like a little bit of a lament about like the youth and like how much they're drinking and how like this is somehow indicative of, I don't know, maybe we've like let them 
you know, go too far here or something like that. Um, and at the same time, there's also this love of that, this like obsession with that youthful, I don't know, exuberant, yeah. uh, wistfulness, wistfulness for yeah. that kind of embrace of the, of, of the kind of, yeah, the ability to just, um, have no responsibility and just get completely drunk and play these kind of sort of absurd games. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's, that is, that is, you're definitely right, Paul, that this movie in America has a completely, all, everything that happens has a completely different connotation, partly because drinking in America is so, you know, moralized and, um, you know, it's, it's associated with all these negative things, um, which does not feel the case. Uh, to be the case in Danish culture, at least. Yeah, I mean, personally, I lived in Korea for five years, which is quite similar to Danish culture in the sense in which alcohol is a pastime, like a national yeah. pastime. Mm. And it is expected of you to drink and drink copiously at work events. And it's part of your assimilation into the culture. And if you don't drink, you're an outsider. And I'm actually um, not completely an abstinent person or like straight edge or anything, but I don't drink much. So mm-hmm. it was tricky. I had my co-teachers have to, uh, hide and pour water into <laughs> shots because it at least looks like soju. We're lucky that their alcohol looks like soju. And so it'd be me. And I had one co-teacher who was pregnant. We'd be drinking the water shots with our principal and feigning and talk like inebriation. The pregnant teacher didn't have to so much. When she got really I was going to say, doesn't she get a pass? <laughs> you would think, right? They go pretty hard, though. The, the, you, it's pretty wild. But yeah, she got a pass. But I, I, at least... Uh, They're like, once kinda, that baby's born, though, we're, you know, <laughs> you take a shot right away. Yeah, and make up for lost time, too. So. <laughs> um, yeah, that's wow. wild. Yeah, I mean, I there is obviously a drinking culture in the U.S., and it is one of these things that... It's almost like an act of rebellion, though, right? Like it's not encouraged by parents. It's it well, I mean, by most parents in the broader community. And it, it's yeah, it's this sort of thing that like when you get to college, I'm I'm basically describing Laura's experience. Excuse you. <laughs> when you get to college, you just like <laughs> let loose because all the reins are off. <laughs> Would you say that's fair? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, but I think again in the U.S. too, like I feel like there's like a glorification of alcohol and also um, a moralization against it. But yeah. it's like you are only sort of allowed to partake in it in like certain contexts and periods of your life. It feels like at least how the, in terms of how the media um, shows it. Whereas yeah. you're right, like it, in, in other cultures, like it's just a pastime and, you know, from young to old, it's just like a part of your life and it doesn't have to be um, something so extreme. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's get into the movie now. And um, uh, thank you for the the synopsis, uh, Paul. I think that's that's exactly right. I'm just going to go through the four main characters just to mention them because they'll we'll be mentioning them periodically. So Martin, played by Mads Mikkelsen, he's it. They're all teachers. He teaches history. There's he's the ton- world's most handsome history teacher. Of Very all time. handsome. He could be a serial killer. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> There's Tommy, he's the oldest, he teaches gym, and he's the one that's always hanging out with the kids at the soccer field. There's Peter, he teaches music, um, and he wants kids? He wants kids that's and he's, he's single. He does. Single and wants he's, kids. Yeah, he's too much of a stress case apparently to date women, so that's his issue. And finally, there's Nikolai, <laughs> the troublemaker. He's the youngest. I didn't actually know what he taught, but I was looking it up. I guess he teaches philosophy. He's so. talking about psychology in, in his classroom, the only time we ever see him. Okay, but he teaches it psychology. it could be oh, philosophy okay. of psychology. No, doubtful, but yeah, he probably... <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so psychology. Thank you, Laura. Uh, but yeah, somewhere it said he taught philosophy, but maybe he teaches both. And it did um, say that, uh, sorry to interrupt. It did say that he taught philosophy, but you're right, Laura. In the movie, he's talking psychology. So I was also confused. What confusing. did he really teach? Why did everyone say philosophy? I think it's a Laura Barbara situation. Oh, Shout no. Shout out Tenet. Um, so, uh, no, embarrassing. <laughs> so, okay. So, yeah. And um, all right. So, this, this episode, we're going to do something which I think. At least we don't do too much on cows in the field, but we're gonna we're gonna have a kind of uh, aesthetic disagreement about this film rather than probe into the. I mean, we'll get into the themes and things, but but it will be with a critical lens. Never since the Forest Gap episode are things gonna get so heated. Paul, give us a give us another thing, some more stuff that you liked about the movie. I mean, first off, one of the things about this film is it's hard not to come at it with the context around it that I did know. Mm. And I'm just going to ask before I go into this, did you know the context around this film at all? No, okay. we have <laughs> no idea what the context is. And so please. Got it. it adds quite a lot of gravitas to it. Vintenberg's um, daughter passed away right before this film was being uh, going to be shot. And it was actually going to wow. be a film uh, like collaboration between him and his daughter. Oh, and wow. it was going to be about their relationship with uh, it still was going to be set in school, but like a school teacher who drinks and the school teacher's daughter who doesn't really want their father to drink. And so it had a similar theme, but it wasn't exactly the same. So it got tweaked a bit. So I think that's really interesting. And, but also something I grapple with because just because a context has a lot of heft and it does, and it, it makes you emotionally uh, resonate with the film in a different way. You still want to critically approach the film on its own merits as well. It's one of those tricky things if that makes any sense. Why I say that is one of your points in your review, which will reference mm -hmm. a lot, which I really appreciated and kind of understood, was uh, it has a little bit of a scarcity of a, uh, the focus is not as uh, accentuated upon the inner life of these four individuals as you would want for a film that keeps referencing someone like Kierkegaard and is dealing with philosophical ideas. Um, there's not so much of an inner life, I feel like, on the surface. And so that was one of the things I also found problematic. And so at the end, I could see a reading uh, being that it's just superficially promoting a very vapid life of drinking and revelry and uh, community and it just seems very middle-class, bourgeois, boring, um, indulgent, sybaritic lifestyle, right? But for me, I was coming into it with this context of the daughter, and that was resonating in the sense that it was giving a gravitas to the frivolity of everything. So in the face of death, everything suddenly heightens, right? And even like the smallest acts or even a hedonistic recreational act suddenly has magnitude because you're always in this strange, tragic scenario, right? We're always, this sounds so <laughs> pompous, but we're always facing death because it's like a very philosophical idea that Kierkegaard kind of is, is grappling with. And so um, it's the approach to life in the face of death. And it could be a very distant death, but it's, or a disseminated death. But it's that element, I think, added so much that it's hard to be as fair or come into it in the same light because I could very easily have been way more cynical without that context. But for me, why I also really resonated to kind of and to get this, I think, dialectic rolling is that I love things that are 
interested in biometrics and in self-diagnostics and that take a mm. uh, what every critic called a pseudoscientific approach to <laughs> a relationship with the world. I mean, and yeah. that's a very loaded term and it's a very negative term. And I understand it, but that's the essence of existentialism. It's that we want to be in flux and we want to be individuated. So you can't ex, uh, you can't universalize that. So you can't become scientific from that. It's uh, personalized science. And so it, it didn't go as deep as I would like to, and we'll get to that. But I love the fact to, that we can watch a film on a mass sc uh, scale that's getting uh, cred that is dealing with people who are interested in their subjective experience in an authentically personalized way. And so that was my yeah. main, that's where I got really passionate about the film. It came from these ideas. Totally. Yeah. No, that that's, I mean, those are two, those are great points. And I I didn't know the context. So that's really interesting. I mean, here's what, here's what I would say though, in response to the context point, um, the, the text of the film doesn't include anything about um, the death of a child. And it would have been interesting actually, I think if it had, and, and if like, Part of what was driving Martin's malaise and whatever existential angst or whatever throughout this film, if that were his, the death of, of, a, of a daughter, that might have actually provided more of a foothold, at least for me to, to get into the emotional stuff that he and his wife are going through. As it stands, it, the sense I get is that he is currently going through when we meet him in the movie, going through a kind of malaise, partly because he's come to the realization that his life is gener generally like devoid of meaning and and he doesn't have much to live for, he feels. And so he kind of is sort of sleepwalking through his life in a way that um, uh, it feels indicative of a kind of, of, of a man who uh, you know, has just woken up one day and 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 thought like, oh, okay, this is what it is like to undergo a midlife crisis, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it wasn't clear what 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 triggered that beyond the just kind of general human condition. It turns out achieving a certain degree of comfort it doesn't provide meaning, and so um, so that was one of the reasons it the plight of Martin and Tommy and Nikolai and Peter, uh who are kind of all in this feeling similarly um, about their lives uh, didn't resonate with me is because these are guys who have every amount of luxury and have made, you know, decisions that have uh, landed them in a role where that they feel is a somewhat, I don't know, thankless position or whatever, and they don't have enough or felt value in their lives. And um, and it does feel to me that this, the 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 anticipate like the solution they grab onto is um, so obviously a bad one, <laughs> and the movie kind of just says, and it turns out it is a bad one. Like it isn't a good idea to spend most of your life in a state of perpetual pseudo inebriation. <laughs> um, that's not a that's not going to lead to the kind of fulfillment that you're looking for, and. Uh, now, there's different ways to read the ending, but the most kind of, you know, pessimistic take is that that I the way I read it is uh, and the movie just ends. You know, he just sort of realizes this and uh, and there's sort of some hints at the promise of him maybe being able to rekindle things with his wife, uh, Martin, that is. But um, 
But there's no indication that he that anything has really changed. I mean, he's made a kind of foray to her in the scene where he's sort of apologized and asked for her hand back, but and she refused. And um, um, but I feel like none of the work that would have been necessary for them to repair that relationship, even the groundwork, has been laid. So, so you know, she's at this point in the in the movie. Just so we know where we are, she's cheated on him and he's found that out he's acted violently towards her to some extent and she's left and they are estranged and it's unclear like everything that else has happened has happened off screen so i'm not totally sure what i'm supposed to feel as regards whether they could make this work whether it would be a good idea for them to make this work and i wasn't convinced that that anything interesting had happened there and uh, so the arc of the characters seems basically to sum up this thought life sucks Turns out drinking all the time doesn't help. And it kind of ends with like, cool. <laughs> and, I, and I just thought, oh, man, that's not great. <laughs> that that didn't seem like a very deep and interesting movie. And then and so anyway, that was that was that's one issue that I had with it. But of course, that comes from a particular reading of the film. I'm going to be in the middle now, but I um, I didn't know the context about the daughter. And I think that's really interesting because the stuff that I liked the most from the movie was the was some of the family stuff. I thought, um, you know, the scene where he goes camping was really great. Like you just because you usually whenever he's home, his kids are kind of just like floating past him like ghosts. Like you get the sense that he like they live there, but he doesn't engage with them anymore. But he has this camping trip at the beginning of the experiment and they make sure to have a, a card that says, you know, BAC zero. He's not drinking on this That's camping true. trip. It's yep. not the alcohol. If the idea was the alcohol sort of like warms you up, opens you up, like makes you feel more alive. Like that's not what's happening in that exact moment, except for that the experiment has begun. He's made a choice. He's made a move to do something. And just that isn't something that is enough to like get him to like get inspired to go on this canoeing trip. He hasn't gone on in eight years. And there's a really lovely scene where they're, playing um 20 questions and the kid keeps like yeah not narrowing it down properly yeah. right he keeps being like are you a frog or <laughs> um and uh i loved that like the that scene was so warm and felt really authentic and it was really good um so i loved the family stuff um and i do wonder if maybe you know you would probably if you just are grappling with the loss of a child, that you might need some distance before you make a movie about a loss of a child yeah no, no um of but course, of um but I really I liked that quite a lot. And the idea of like just that 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 sort of internal experiment, as you put it, Paul, um, is enough to sort of like have that reconnection with his family and remind him what he valued eight years ago and and what he sees in his wife and his children that he has just totally turned himself off to. The problem then is that the experiment becomes all consuming and he distances himself further from his family in doing so. So that doesn't work. Um, but but I really I really I really loved that scene. So that was just my in the middle point. I think that's actually a very important thing to bring up though, because I think the big failure of this that we're probably all agreeing on and still unspoken is that for whatever reason there isn't enough of a grounding in the domestic relationships in the family narrative there's too much of the bromance of the four guys for that yeah. ending to really work on our um you know and to root for martin to you know get back with his wife and to repair their marriage because his wife is so two-dimensional and i love the canoeing trip because that's the only time where we really get to see anything from her besides being a little bit stolid and uh just non-communicative in 
I get that that's kind of the dynamic of their marriage, right? She works the night shift. He works the day shift. They have these brief interludes in which they're passing by. But you don't really see enough to really want to root for them or to know what they've lost. And so the canoeing trip gives you a little, but I wish there was more of that so that I could feel that the romantic pull of the film was significant enough for it to be the real crux of the ending. And so mm-hmm. I think that is a huge point because it is quite imbalanced. There's so many great scenes. I think they're quite hilarious, but they're very masculine oriented in a different way, in a European way of like drinking with the guys, right? And just getting totally sloshed and, you know, blitzed out in town. And it's hilarious in a very juvenile way as well. But it's better than your average film with like Morgan Freeman and the guys going to Las Vegas or something and getting, you know, <laughs> debauched for a weekend. Morgan, Morgan Freeman at, and the guys. average Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, <film>. Las Vegas. <laughs> I thought you were totally going to say Will Ferrell. So Morgan Freeman, that was a, that was a curveball. Sure, sure. I guess I want to make it. No, but it's a midlife crisis movie. That's the point. Well, I guess so is old school. So anyway. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> old school would have been a better reference. You're right. Because uh, that's. That's like a geriatric crisis, right? That's like an old person yeah, 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 crisis exactly. that I brought up. Um, yeah. <laughs> and The Hangover is a little too young, skewing too young, but I thought of The Hangover a lot when I watched this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 um, totally. But I think that I that is a major challenge that this film did not overcome, is to be able to somehow create the dynamic between Martin and his wife in a way that we also not only cared for their relationship, but saw some sort of real growth in his movement back to his wife, like just text messaging and apologizing isn't quite enough. And I also agree the reason why, and I want to let you talk first, but I want to get to this later that I was still so involved was because I was bringing so much of Kierkegaard into it. And throughout he's these tropes or archetypes of Kierkegaardian philosophy to me, like the night of resignation and then the night of faith. But on screen, in the text of the film, those aren't really there. So whether it's the real life yeah. story of Innerberg and his daughter or these Kierkegaardian archetypes, I'm bringing so much into this film that I projected on it. And so that was why when I read your review, I realized if I didn't have all these external contexts, right, I don't know how I would have really uh, vibed with this film. And so it's really interesting. So I want you to be able to elaborate on your take. I mean, let's we'll we'll get into the Kierkegaard thing in a second, but can I just yeah. say one other thing about the, the relationship? Because we're just dwelling on the relationship for a second. I mean, I think that I can accept that they have had a relationship and it was good at one point. That's fine. That that can be fine. But what I what the problem is that there, there's supposed to be a kind of shift that happens. That's I take it supposed to be a crucial shift is that text message exchange that happens, but that all happens off screen. And I just think that there's a huge problem that has not been dealt with with this relationship. It, it's really twofold. One, maybe it all stems from Martin, but the, the main issue here is Martin has been in a in a funk, let's just call it. He's been in some sort of existential funk. And as a result, he's retreated away from his family and they have um, moved, in some sense, moved on from him. And now they're trying to reconnect but like the way that his wife has moved on from him has been a total breach of their trust. And so how are you now going to repair that trust and reforge that relationship? That's an interesting movie. I think that's I'd be 
give me that movie, Vinderberg, because I, I'm more interested in that issue than I am with a bunch of guys getting drunk. And I don't I, I I'm I'm lost on the like the role of the drinking. I mean, Laura, you articulated that it's this catalyst thing, which is fine. I can sort of see that. But but I, I think the thing I'm most interested in is all the stuff that's sort of happening off screen. So that that's just one thing on the relationship that I, I wanted to mention before we move to character. Do you have more to say on this, Laura? No, I was going to say something about Kierkegaard, only that I that I think, I mean, the movie does ask you to bring Kierkegaard to it if it That's opens true, right? with Kierkegaard. Yeah. So I don't think yeah. necessarily, Paul, that you were like projecting no, 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 things Paul, onto yeah, this movie because yeah. it asks you. And I wonder, too, in a Danish context, you know, do they know their Kierkegaard? I don't know anything about Kierkegaard. I'm going to be very quiet when you guys talk about this because I don't know anything about him. But like. If you're Danish, I bet you know yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, they probably read Kierkegaard <laughs> in school, but so I, they're bringing. There yeah. so I think the Danish audience is going to bring a lot of Kierkegaard into this that I was missing because I wasn't reading it on that level. Yeah, we're okay. Should we just talk about Kierkegaard? Is, yeah, is it time? I think it's time. Why not? Let's go for it. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Okay. Later. All right. So I mean, <laughs> okay. So Paul, you're you're gonna you're gonna have we're gonna have to explain some of this stuff to the audience, but but if you want, I can just tell you when I don't understand what yeah, you said. Yeah, Laura will help us. But uh, <laughs> and I mean, Paul, you're gonna have to explain some of this stuff to me because for the audience, I should just say, Paul, Paul has actually taken legit courses with people like Hubert Dreyfus, who's like one of the experts on Heidegger and stuff. So like I have like read Kierkegaard, some Kierkegaard and I like have a, you know, passing understanding of some of this stuff. But uh, Paul is actually knows a lot about this. So this will be this should be fun. OK, so um, I take it that one aspect of the existentialist philosophy, as I understand it, that is, you know, I read it off the back of the cereal box, which is basically the Sartre's existentialism is a humanism. That's, I find, the text that is most revealing to me about what's going on with this kind of cluster of ideas. But in that, there's this thought about, okay, so, you know, life doesn't give you a mean, it does not sort of come equipped with a meaning. You know, we don't have a kind of essence to be discovered that would, if we discovered it, would just tell us what the meaning of life is. like. That's just not the game that we're, we're in. Rather, we are sort of, to use a Heideggerian phrase, thrown into the world. We just sort of find ourselves in the world and we're like, wow, this is interesting. We have a body, there's stuff here, and we just have to make sense of it. Now, how do we do that? The Sartrean idea is that you form meaning by a kind of radical choice. So there's this sort of decision that you make, and it's radical not just because you're deciding like how you want to live, he says, you're deciding for all mankind. So, and that's because you're choosing the good. You always have to choose the good for Sartre because this is some feature of his moral psychology, I suppose. So this is the this is the this human condition for, for Sartre. There's no meaning. You can't you can't appeal to other things in the world to, to justify your actions. You just have to act. And once you've done that, you will kind of make a meaning for yourself. You'll sort of forge a kind of, uh, you know, meaningful re relationship in, in the world and you'll find, you won't discover, you'll create the meaning of your life. Um, and it's an interesting idea. It's a very powerful one. I, I feel like what we got in this movie is a kind of the, the sort of first step of that. So the first step being life doesn't have a meaning in and of itself. Like you don't just like get to just exist in the world and like be guaranteed that your lot, your actions are going to be meaningful and, and, and valuable and so on. You have to kind of choose it. And, but we didn't get the second step of like anyone actually choosing. Now, perhaps the choice is Martin's choice to sort of 
reconcile with his wife. I'm not, uh, maybe. Um, or the choice is just to, you know, at the very end of the movie, just to like dance on the street. Uh, but again, I, I, it doesn't, I, I never one clear was clear like where is the like recognition that this is the this is the path to finding meaning in your life, which would have been a very you know kind of carrying out the existentialist idea, and so that was my sort of primary issue with it was that I I sort of feel like it pointed out the most facile aspect of the existentialist view, which is like yeah if you're if you have a middle class life, it's not might not be that fulfilling. <laughs> and I and I sort of thought, yeah, that seems right. I mean, you know, like just going to work and teaching these kind of these kids who seem unappreciative of, of what you're doing for them again and again. It's the same material over and over again. He's a high school teacher, right? So he said constantly teach the same stuff again and again. It's pretty boring. Um, you might find that that's in somewhat insignificant and desire a kind of deeper uh, connection. And I thought, yeah, that's. Seems right, but I, you know, I mean, I, I could have got that from old school. <laughs> you know, I feel like that same kind of idea is in a movie like old school. So anyway, uh, I put it to you, Paul, to tell us a little bit more about how this film brings in Kierkegaard. No, you bring up a lot to work with there. And so I'm, I'm excited to uh, try to build off that. So yeah, the SART breakdown that you, you offered right there really sets it up nicely for people to understand existentialism on a broad level. And that's the responsibility comes to the self to imbue their own existence with a meaningful uh, weight, right? And if you do not do that, you are going to end up being a submissive, acquiescent individual that can generally build up attrition over time and lose your soul. And so we start the film at that point, right? These, especially Martin, who's our main character, uh, is is a null individual, right? He's kind of devoid of soul. And so it does work in a sense on his narrative trajectory in which we see the emergence of spirit within him. What I think might be problematic for many people is that the deus ex machina of the film is drinking, right? It's alcohol. But I really feel like it could have been anything. It could have been meditation, for example. Uh, it could have been yoga. It could have been running. It could have been, um, it could have been, I, I don't want to be absurd to get people confused, but it could be almost anything. It could be watching film, like a sudden uh, yeah. love of film. But the film, I think, was trying to do with the Kierkegaardian aspect, but it didn't really go into the greater parts of Kierkegaard, was to say that the ethical, as it is defined by the universal, which Kierkegaard calls the the collective society, the the people that you live in your world that compose a shared existence is in itself uh, facile, to use the word you threw out earlier. It's seemingly important, but it's actually superficial. And uh, Heidegger would call it idle talk. It's this generalized term of getting anything from without is something that you should be suspicious of. And so they have a deep um, pretty reckless if you take it in one interpretation, but uh, exaltation of self-experimentation in life. I think it's kind of the unspoken talk is that you should treat life seriously as an agent on your own terms and be explorer. You be an explorer, be an adventurer in your own body. And so what differentiates this film from, say, old school is they don't have any of that going on. And 
as marginal as that is, the fact that they keep coming up at that screen that shows the level of their blood alcohol and those brief moments in which they're defining their, uh, I don't know what they're really writing, but they're sort of trying to do some sort of, as people call yeah. it, pseudoscientific a scholarly article. Yeah, some article. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, they they yeah. are trying to be studious in this endeavor, and yeah. I think that mm -hmm. adds a very important dynamic that I was really drawn to. And there are many moments in which I resonated with when they listened to music and felt the goosebumps. I think they're interacting with how external substances can make you feel alive to things in the external world, and it's this very common topic in a lot of philosophy Deleuze likes to explore alcohol and creativity or the aesthetic or the religious experience and it's a tricky uh faustian bargain that we often uh if we want to treat it like seriously some people like to ethically say oh it's bad because a b and c but there is a lot of good in Vinterberg in one of his interviews said it's funny that we universally decry this uh, pastime or this recreation that really is the impetus for so many of our marriages. Like how many people met their <laughs> future spouse <laughs> on a date where they drink a glass of wine? Yeah. And it's such a true thing. So it's to normalize this in a way that doesn't delegitimize it, I, I think was a profound shift away from the American approach. The idea of what is alcohol? Let's treat this as if we really don't know it because we come to these conclusions constantly. And this is the existential approach. And I'll end it yeah, here okay, that we think we know what things are when we've really just accumulated these presuppositions and stereotypes of like everything in our life. And it's to treat things on its own terms again. We constantly do that is very tough, but can make you more sophisticated and mature in your relationship to the world. So yeah, I like that point a lot. Sorry, do you want to jump in this? Yeah, I was. That made me think about it again um, because I think I we can get more into this when I get to my feminist rage. But I, I felt like this movie was a bunch of dudes just like trying to escape the like mundane responsibilities of their life um, and to be like children. And I was, at, but like doing it in a in a pseudoscience way. You know, they're going to write an article, so it's okay. And I was just like, Ugh, whatever. But I, but. I but I thought about like I think I was thinking about alcohol as an escape right or inebriation as an escape but you make a really good point there is that moment where they listen to music there is like a moment there is like the 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 two sides of the coin right or that it like you you drink to forget or it like escape you or you to distance from your current situation or or it can make you feel much more present in your body and to your immediate surroundings and living in the moment and in some way, that is what, you know, living, drinking to forget or, you know, it, it is right. It's just to just like be right here and not to be caught up in, in your past or the responsibilities or the the worries that are waiting for you in the next moment. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, how they're trying to find meaningness and ha meaning and happiness in their life. And and um, the, the wife at one point says, you know, when you're finally having fun, you're doing it without me. And this experiment is taking him farther away from I felt like the things that were right there to bring him happiness, the things that he says that he wants, and he's moving farther away from them in this process. But, you know, finding happiness and dancing in the moment is really important. If you define your happiness or your success by other people, by your children, by your marriage, by your students, though, that leave you, you know, and go on and graduate, like that's, you're never really going to quite grasp it, right? You have to find something, you have to find the happiness in your own self and in your own present. 
I mean, was that at all articulate? Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> <That's great>. I, <laughs> I just, I just want to also, yeah, build on what you were saying, Paul, about this sort of self-experimentation and learning to interact with aspects of the world in new ways. And I, I think that is, there's, that's very interesting. I, 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 I suspect though that as far as whether this is Kierkegaardian, I'm not as sure. So, I mean, here, so the quote, that we get from Kierkegaard is what is youth a dream? What is love the content of the dream? Now, I, I didn't know where this was from, but I looked it up. It comes from either or, and it's in the, the part, which is the, the first part, which is written pseudonymously by Victor Eremita, um, which is Latin for victorious hermit. Anyway, um, this part of either or is supposed to be Kierkegaard's representation of the aesthetic stage of life. Now, the aesthetic stage, and I think that does capture, as you put it, Paul, in a comment to me, uh, that does capture the the what what seems to be going on with this whole experiment, right? They're like exploring the different uh, visceral pleasures of of the body or whatever, um, and seeing whether that might lead to kind of enrichment. Um, I mean, part of the aesthetic experience isn't always just being drunk, but it, of course, it involves music and you know deepening your appreciation of music and art and that kind of thing, which they all do. But 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 I think what this leaves aside is that Kierkegaard is setting this up in his sort of total philosophy as a kind of fail failure. Like the aesthetic life is supposed to be a stage merely that is like a, a a failed stage in a way it's not supposed to be the like where you find your ultimate meaning and and, and what comes next yeah so then what comes next is the ethical stage okay and um and the ethical stage is where you forge a commitment to another person or to a cause or to a, a, a belief system and ultimately Kierkegaard thinks the ethical stage is not where you rest that's uh, it, just merely another stage on the way to the religious phase where you kind of embrace the absurd but but anyway it was just not clear to me that the movie had the characters transcending or transitioning between these stages which would have been more of a kind of Kierkegaardian um, um, yeah some sort of embrace or depiction of what Kierkegaard was getting at I mean to the extent that it is a depiction of the aesthetic stage it really is a little bit of a depiction of not just something that Kierkegaard would have would have you know talked about, but just like hedonism, like a kind of let's just like find our own pleasure and be like scientific about our discovery of our own pleasure, and that that's exactly what the hedonists would be saying. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, it just that's that's what you that's like the goal in life. That is what will bring you the most uh, happiness. And um, sorry, what will bring you the most happiness is the thing that you ought to be striving for. And um, now, okay, so so that's that's like one read of the movie. And and I, I I do think though that you know maybe there's a deeper thing here, which is that Martin is seeing this whole process as something that he has to do in order to reach a kind of deeper engagement with his family, which he thinks is ultimately what he's trying to trying to save is his family. And so he might be himself committed in this ethical way. And he's sort of doing this experimentation in order to, to, to do that. That's possible. I mean, 
it's unclear to me uh, uh, what what's going on with Martin, and and so, uh, but I could see that read. In which case, he's more of a ethical character, so to speak, than 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 the, than I was originally uh, seeing him. But anyway, that was one issue that I had was like, okay, so we're gonna do Kierkegaard. It feels like we kind of stalled out on the first stage of things. And can I ask a quick reminder? Yeah. Um, in the scene where Tristan, Tristan, I think it was his name, the student who gets who gets like all stressed out about exams, his topic was Kierkegaard, right? Yes, what was yeah. the prompt? Do you, did, did it link? I back think it was to something about quote? no. It was something about like or does anxiety. it represent an arc in I, any way? Anxiety, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Remember. So it was sort of it was like reflecting his current situation. Okay, I was just wondering if like somehow the opening quote and then this the next time they raise Kierkegaard like gives us a clue and, into like an arc of this movie. I mean, not obviously. Okay. Uh, but maybe. but I know that's a really good point though. I think they are still working with the ideas of Kierkegaard with Tristan, if that's his name, I don't remember either. Um, it's a similar parallel character to Martin in a way. It's someone who is mm-hmm. um, stuck in a, their own shell, their own creative uh, hermetic world, and they need to somehow get out of it. Whether alcohol, like I mentioned, is the answer is a whole nother debate, right? <laughs> But it I is know, that made me yeah. so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's the function of this movie, <laughs> though, right? And so I'll take it just on a symbolic level. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad you got into either or as well, um, because I think that's really essential for the discussion of this film. Um, I think he does the either or element decently well. So I think he starts off as a more ethical person. We see him at that uh, that dinner party of his friend, and he's drinking water, and his friends are drinking alcohol. And he, he seems really wound up and constricted by the ethical. When he gets barraged by his parents for being a lackluster, boring, insipid teacher, he defends himself, but he doesn't, uh, I mean, he does say one kind of petty thing about text messaging in class or something, right? <laughs> but he does seem like someone who is abiding by the rules in a way that it's stripped him of all, you know, life. He has no vigor anymore. He doesn't have any like uh, vivacity on any level. And so we we need to see him coming out of the ethical and he's pulled out by the aesthetic, right? By pleasures, right? By the immediate sensory uh, experience that is stimulated by alcohol. What it doesn't reconcile or build as well is the third and most important, it's the religious. And it's actually a, weird, a really cool idea that Kierkegaard constantly works with when he gets into his evangelical existentialism. And so for him, the religious move is a reconciliation of the ethical and the aesthetic, but it's beyond both. And it's to be in an unmediated, unmediated relationship to experience. It's to be in a one-to-one, unfiltered, undisclosed connection with reality. And I think I have to read a little too much into the ending to really be able to connect all the dots and say that this film sells me on that. But it does end in a great dancing sequence, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think I wrote like Korean as my word because it brings in that Greek love of dance is this transcendental thing. I mean, Nietzsche said the most essential thing is to dance once a day. I'm paraphrasing. I'm probably botching it, but... There's a long tradition in philosophy with the metaphor of dance as this absurd act that takes you away from the quotidian or that infuses the quotidian. It doesn't take you away. It 
fills it with a joyousness and an ecstatic truth that re-alters or transforms life into something beyond ordinary lifeless existence. And I'm going to just bring in one quote I did find, and there's tons of them from Kierkegaard that really works with the fact that this movie ended with dance. And I wish dance was even mm. more of a part, but I'm going to just bring up just one quote real quick. Most people live dejectedly in a world of sorrow and joy. They are the ones who sit along the wall and do not join in the dance. The Knights of Infinity are dancers and possess elevation. And I think, and it goes on and on. Like he talks for like pages about dance here, but I don't know if I'm giving too much to the text by saying that that five minute ending of the great dance sequence is really saying somehow that he's entered into this space <laughs> of the religious or of the ecstatic um, appreciation of life, a reaffirmation of life after you've already resigned from life. And I'm not sh sure if I'm being too generous, but I do think that there is some sort of significant correlation going on here that's not entirely tenuous either. So that is another thing I also definitely brought to this is that we have the traditional movement too, because in all of Kierkegaard's uh, texts, uh, or specifically in his uh, text, Fear and Trembling, which is the one I studied the most, it's the movement from being what he calls the Knight of Resignation, which is someone who is capitulated, forfeit, given up all of worldly things. Um, usually this is actually a brave act in itself, which is a little different from our text in which he's done it, I think, more passively. But it's mm -hmm. someone who's able to reject the world, to become a nihilist, we could say, and then take it all back and say that the world is amazing, let's say, and imbue every moment with that affirmation of life. So it's that movement back into life from someone who is already sort of receding from life that does resonate, I think, with me still and with so many people. I mean, on the ending, I think the ending, we should dwell a little bit on about the ending because I, I, I think it's quite unclear what's going on with him at the ending. And oftentimes that's a good thing for a movie. You know, it's nice to have a kind of open-ended, who knows what's happening, that's kind of read whatever you want into it. But I think actually here it does the movie a slight disservice because it, it would be better if we had some sense of whether, as you said, Paul, his dancing, Martin's dancing at the ending is a kind of he's re, he's, this is a renewed vigor with with which he's now going to approach life and and sees the value of his action, you know, his life and his actions and has found some meaning and something to live for. Um, or whether this is just him being excited about the prospect of getting back with his wife or something like that, which he's just gotten off the text chain with her. And so but I think the fact that we know that he has a history, that he's been a, a dancer in the past is important to that. Because if it, we didn't have that information, then we might just think like this was his sort of like he's doing a jig because he's happy. But because we know that he has that he was like that he had this connection back in the past, like he's like getting back to who he was. Yes. No, that that's right. So that's another thing is that maybe he's re, he's getting back to like some he's reclaiming some old version of himself or something yeah. like that. But, but, but I, I, what I'm, what I'm interested in is whether he has progressed as a character. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the other thing that makes it complicated is that he's surrounded by a bunch of people who are themselves dancing and drinking and it's a good time and everything. 
So what are we, I mean, what are we supposed to make of the fact that he wants to join into that? It doesn't totally, it's not immediately obvious that like this is this like amazing act of the kind, you know, of a, of a kind of embracing life and, you know, I can't help myself, but I just have to like go for it or whether he's just like, okay, well, everyone's dancing. I, I'm okay to dance in that circumstance, but I didn't like previously he's been asked to dance by his friends in the, in the restaurant and he refuses his friends all dance. Um, and he doesn't perhaps indicative of that. He, you know, is too stuck in this kind of rule system, as you put it, Paul, and he doesn't want to like break the conventions of the of the thing. But but again, the problem is that we don't have a one to one comparison because in the end, he's he's not breaking any conventions by dancing in the streets with the kids. They're all everyone's dancing. So it's it's less like he's making some active choice as opposed to he's just going with the flow. So I'm just unclear. You know, I, I, I leave the movie kind of feeling like one read, which I guess you guys are kind of articulating is the drinking is just the impetus for him to make a change in his life. It could have been anything. It could have been chess. It could have been whatever. Or, and then at the end, he's really changed. He's really sort of come to like value life again. Or is it like the drinking was just like a huge mistake. He should not have been drinking this much. And it was just like a a huge failure. And he's right back where he started. He'll just kind of go along with the flow when it's there and and people happen to be having fun and he's a little drunk right there at the moment too so he's having fun but uh but as soon as the alcohol wears off he's back in his kind of depressive state and and maybe he'll try to reconcile with his wife and then it'll but it will go exactly the way it went before because he hasn't really made any significant change fair enough too and the thing that i noticed about that last scene was that he is grappling with a melancholy i mean with uh, mourning uh, for the loss of his friend. Yeah. Um, so it's in the face of that. So that's true. Um, yeah, that's And true. that works both for my reading, but also works against my reading as well. In that I think that it's different than just participating in the revelry on the streets because he's approaching it in this way that is triumphant in the sense that it's very hard to escape the sorrow of the moment or to not necessarily escape it because I think that would be a really a superficial way of coping with it, but to embrace the sorrow and finitude and the memory of his friend by, um, you know, celebrating life again. And I think that it does focus on him. So everyone else is a function of the movie. And it, we also have to remember that this movie is dealing with tropes on a cinematic level. And the whole movie was very much grounded in reality, whether, uh, you know, we could debate circumstantial conveniences, but it's it's based in the realm of the real. And that last sequence is very much fantastical. So it's it's pointing towards a a very rich, I think, metaphorical reading. Uh just the way it's oh, shot. Okay. The silliness of it. Mm-hmm. Suddenly it's choreographed and he goes and jumps into the water. I mean it's it's kind of beyond. It's it's a lot of fun. That's a good but, point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but I I also think we got a little caught up in the ending too quick. And I want to hear some of the more readings about uh, Laura, your take on the feminist issues in this <laughs> film. Cause I do think they resonate. And I think there's an interesting discussion to be had there. Yeah. I mean, I, this is going to, this is going to feel after your Kierkegaard readings, like very superficial, but I, um, I think the moment where I turned to Justin, I was like, is this movie supposed to make me have a rage blackout? And he's like, no, I think, I don't think so. Um, was when the wife of um, well, yes and no. It's unclear. Actually, well, that yes, yeah. it's unclear. The wife of Nicola asks. They're about to go to. They're about to start the ignition experiment and like really go on a bender. 
And uh, the mom is the and the wife of Nicola says, you know, can you pick up some cod? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And she's like, cod. She's like, she knows he's really not like paying attention to her. And she leaves and all the men look at each other and kind of roll their eyes and they're like, cod. <laughs> you know, they they make fun of her for being such a stick in the mud. And I was thinking about the women. All the women in this movie are, you know, are sticks in the mud and, you know, getting or getting in the way of their fun. You know, we've got um, sort of uh, – We've got, you know, Martin's wife just sort of always has that steely gl- look at him the whole movie. Um, you know, Nicola's w- wife is pissed off all the time with him because he's like peeing the bed like their toddler. And <laughs> and the principal of the school who's having to like, yeah. you know, check up on them is also a woman. Um, and I feel like those are the most prominent women in the movie. They're responsible. They're keeping their shit together. They're keeping their family, you know, fed and like, and they're rightfully annoyed at these men in their life, you know? Um, but yet I feel like this movie feels like so many other movies where we've seen, there's like a whole, we just named like the hangover and old school. There's a whole genre of movies of like, boys will be boys, men enjoying themselves, and they're fun and they're cathartic and we like to like participate in the revelry, um, but we like don't as much like to see women doing it. Um, or like if women are the voice of reason in these movies, they're often played for laughs or like obstacles to the fun of, of you know, watching the men, watching the boys be boys. I will say that I think this movie, you know, I don't think that the movie does it that way exactly because um, I do think like. I mean, I certainly as a viewer felt a lot of empathy for his wife and felt like she was totally right to, you know, (laughs) be frustrated with him. Um, But it just sort of made me think about this bigger genre of um, of the sort of men cavorting and the way the roles women play in that. And it made me really frustrated. I I really agree. I think that it's a greater problem with all of these films and the tropes we fall into, because the one thing I will, and it's not a counter argument at all. I think it actually builds on it as you're on your frustrations is we've had a wave of like even proto-feminist films like Bridesmaids or Wine Country, which kind of do the same thing. And why can't we have films that have rounded characters on both sides of the gender like these, like on these comedies, we have to have like one that's fully rounded or focused. And the other one is completely cardboard cutout characters and so the wives are so underwritten in these film in this film particularly that it was very frustrating um and so that fresh cod could have been funny if she was um if you knew her character more because it could have been like this uh, neurotic thing that she had to have fresh and if they built it up in some way we cared <laughs> for her in a deeper way but because yeah. she is so plastic and so marginalized throughout the film is the kind of uh nagging wife who just takes care of the kids and takes care of all the responsibilities it's so unfair so by turning the wives into like shrews, the film does itself such a disservice and it makes you feel kind of icky about caring for these men the way you do. I just yeah. wish that we could all take a lesson in whenever we write these comedies, like somehow <laughs> I, I'm, I'm down for the appetite route of making them another 45 minutes if they have to be, but but getting both sides <laughs> of the equation to be rich here, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, to have nuance. Well, I mean, it, it, it points to the the thought that like for anyone who's undergoing an existential crisis, that's there's a certain privilege that you have to privilege position you have to be in almost yeah. to begin to have an existential crisis. Like when if you're just struggling to make ends meet, you're not having an existential crisis. It just doesn't happen at that point in your life. And it would be you know nice to have the movie recognize that to some degree, recognize that these men get to go and have their 
benders and you know search for meaning because their wives are caring for down. their kids and working extra shifts and I know his wife the, works so hard yeah. <laughs> and and now of course there are these there are the other guys who who are don't have women in their lives but um yeah so there there's the other two but um but it does sort of feel like you have these prominent you know wives who who are basically yeah, like without them, it would have been, I think, a lot harder for these guys to to to, to engage to, in this to have thing. their experiment. Yeah, to do the experiment. I mean, yeah, to, maybe maybe not. I mean, maybe if they were all single, they could have just done it. But um, but yeah, so so that that I think is is something that these movies often don't recognize, and it would be good to. Yeah, and if we saw a woman who decides to go undergo this experiment and then ignore her children. Yes. Well, you then know, it's would, very hard. How would we feel about yeah. that movie? Exactly. You know? Yeah, it's very, yeah. I mean, Bad Moms kind of did that, but besides that, I, I agree. Yeah, I haven't seen Bad Moms, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I totally agree. Uh, it, it would be read very differently, and especially in this well, text, uh, which... Yeah, I mean, the title of that movie is Bad Moms, and the title <laughs> of this movie is not Bad Dads. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's called it's, Super Cool Dudes. Yeah, it's called, no. like... <laughs> Hot, what is it called? Hot, hot history teacher. Hot history teacher, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually, <laughs> I do love the actual Danish title. It's Druck, which just means drink. Yeah. I just want to throw that out there. I think it's yeah. such a oh. better title yeah. than Another Round. I don't know. Another Round seems a little. Yeah. I kept forgetting the title of this movie. Yeah. It's kind of gimmicky. I don't know. I just think Druck sounds better. Drink sounds better. Um, I think that we're all in the same boat on this one in in yeah. more ways than not absolutely and one of the things i also felt like we you mentioned is that two don't have wives so it's maybe not that but to take care of the kids right the kids are the essential element here yeah that the two who have kids are kind of at least uh martin's kids are older so they kind of are self-sufficient but especially nikolai in his uh domestic situation i think that nikolai is the most problematic of all by far and that is, I, I don't know. It's, it's just one of the shortcomings of the script, but I get that they were probably just trying to give you different characters with different um, paths that alcohol yeah. was somehow serving as a conduit for. I mean, there's another read, which is that the movie is not asking us to support these guys, to root for them. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that I, my issue with it is that there's just too many reads of this movie and I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to think, but, but yeah, I mean, one, one take on it is like, look at these guys who had the privilege to have existential crises and go on and <laughs> do this stupid activity and get nowhere with it. And look at the wives who didn't have to, who, you know, we didn't spend any time with, but who, who, who are like the ones who have to deal with the fallout of all of this. And, uh, that's another take. And if you want to, you know, if you if if that were the movie, if it was clear, more clear in that regard, I would have liked it a lot more. You know, but I don't I don't think that's the right read. But I do think like you could take it that way and maybe get something more from it. Yeah, no, I mean, I do think this movie, it is nuanced in that I don't think they're complete heroes. I don't think we're supposed to be totally on board with their journey and the time. And when Nicola's wife says to him, I haven't slept through the night in three years, I was like, oh, I felt that one like yeah. in my soul. And I think I think a lot of, you know, viewers would like, yeah, this is this is sort of massively unfair. Um, so I think it's there. Um, but it just made me think lar more like more broadly about, you know, I was I was mentioning the suggestion and I and I don't know 
Did you watch Breaking Bad, Paul? I've seen the first season. There's a his wife. Well, well as part of the arc, as part of the Walter arc, Walter White gets worse and worse and worse. He gets and worse and worse and worse and better. I mean, he's like really successful at you know at selling at selling drugs, but he's sort of taken his wife down with him and his family, and she's like frustrated. But it's strange that she. Bec- it's so much fun to watch an antihero. It's so much fun to watch Walter White do his thing. That when Skyler very reasonably is mad that he's blowing up their life a little bit. As a viewer, you kind of feel like she's like being a, you know, being a pain. (laughs) It's just like a strange phenomenon that I find myself getting caught up in, too, like because it's so much fun to watch people, you know, break the rules that when you have a rule keeper on screen, you know, your immediate reaction is like, you know, go away. (laughs) (laughs) But they're often women. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's partly that I do wonder whether it's also that the viewpoint character is the rule breaker. I mean, what if the viewpoint character were the, were the effect, you know, were the cop in quotes, maybe (laughs) then we would take their side. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Or would it just be a shitty movie? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's the point is that nobody wants to see a a rule, rule follower movie. Nobody wants to watch the movie about me. Justin. I mean, I know, but I, I kind of think there are lots of those movies. Like, isn't RoboCop kind of like, and you know, all, all, all the like propaganda movies are like that, right? They're always like. That's true. That we're, is true. We're we're keeping the order. They have their own issues, but that's true. Anyway, point yeah. taken. There's a few auteurs I would say like Osgar Farhadi, the Iranian filmmaker. You've probably seen A Separation or The yeah. Salesman, right? I feel like he always creates films where like both sides are so conflicted and nuanced yeah. that mm. that's why I think he's a genius in many ways um, in his moral approaches to these very complex situations. Um, I also wanted to quickly tap on one of the things you were talking about with the privilege, because I think that's an interesting thing to bring up about the arc of this story and whether it's satisfying or not. Um, I do have a little bit of empathy. I have empathy for like all stratas. So I think that there is a real metaphysical malaise and depression that comes with a certain lifestyle. And as much as people are stuck in like, um, very difficult lifestyles that are like the day-to-day hustle. They just have to make means literally constantly. And that comes with a whole lot of problems that are very visceral and real. There are real problems that people can feel legitimately stuck in all sorts of lifestyles. That said, they have a lot of opportunity to turn their uh, rebirth in life into an altruistic enterprise, right? And the question is, how much do they turn this into the external. And I think in some ways they do. So one of the more gratifying parts of this film, of this film is, for example, uh, the story of Tristan, in which I don't necessarily agree with the methodology of giving the kid alcohol before his test. I would have probably preferred <laughs> mindfulness or something. But he's caring for a kid, right? Or uh, the music teacher is trying to get his students to really feel the music. So they're trying to share these things with the external world. And I think yeah. the one that touched me the most was Tommy and Tommy with the little boy on his soccer team. And uh, maybe because I love my sports films lately, but that, I think that was a really rousing <laughs> yeah. moment when he, yeah, uh, yeah, that was good. you know, when the little boy holds Specs his hand and, and stuff, I, I, I really yeah. genuinely felt like he cared for this little boy. And, you know, I think there's something sacrificial in the act of uh, drinking and being in public and wanting to help others while you're doing it and not just being focused on like a, your, so it's very irresponsible, first of all, I'm not uh, endorsing this, but if you are drinking and you're out in public trying to help others, um, 
there's something very giving and generous about that that is interesting because um, Deleuze would say that drinking anytime is almost sacrificial because you're ruining your body to create uh, some sort of a mental elevation or ecstatic state. Mm -hmm. So it's like a give and take. And so they're doing it and giving it in moments in this film to the external. And I think that's a little interesting. I think that's really interesting. I, I mean, I think you bring up Tommy. Well, I, I also want to talk about Farhadi actually, but we'll talk about Tommy since that was the most recently mentioned thing. Um, but Tommy's plot line is, I think, the one which resonates most with me. And it's the most sort of traditional in many respects plot line. Um, his experience with the kid is has actual emotional weight and the what the kid is going through has actual emotional weight and stakes because he's bullied by the other kids. He Tommy sort of gives him the confidence to succeed and he succeeds and all that. And that's fantastic. And I love that. The thing for me, though, is that I don't understand what role alcohol plays in that. So I, I, normally, I'm, I'm sorry, by the way, normally I would not want to be this critical, but I'm just being hypercritical here because we're having fun. Um, but, you know, I just feel like <laughs> what role does the alcohol play? It, 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 Tommy seems like he could have, he was fine doing all this with the kid with specs sans alcohol. So, so it really wasn't obvious to me what role that played, except for ultimately like leading to his death. You know, so he, he you know, because he, he, I mean, I'm reading in somewhat into this, but he is the one who's takes the fall for them because he's shows up drunk at school. I'm assuming he's fired or at least put on some kind of leave from his job. And that seems to be the impetus for him to ultimately commit suicide. And I think, you know, that's really tragic. And and um, it's, it's sort of like he's a guy who kind of didn't need to be doing this alcohol stuff. And he was just sort of caught up in whatever machinations the other guys were doing. So at that that part, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of that. But it was it was uh, it was very tragic. But yeah, and then and then similarly with the music teacher, the role that alcohol plays for Peter and Tommy is less and it's less connected with the the broader theme of the movie than it is for Martin. Like for Martin, it's like you can sort of make sense of what we've been talking about. But for those two guys, it's it's just completely unclear. Yeah, his death feels very gratuitous and trivialized to me. I did not appreciate his death by any means. He didn't need to be doing this yeah. experiment at the beginning. He was totally fine at the dinner. And I, I don't know why they had four characters having to go through this sort of midlife crisis together and find themselves together through drink because it really worked with one character besides wanting to have those scenes where they're all in town wasted for the, the shenanigans yeah. of that, the hijinks of that. Um, and to have the discussions, I guess, to be able to turn into exposition this experiment and not have like a voiceover or something. I think it really would have worked well with just Martin and Nikola Nikolai. I think those two had an interesting dynamic because you have uh, Nikolai who outwardly and invectively critiques him at the dinner for, you know, just being a crappy teacher. And so he's kind mm -hmm. of his antithesis to me more than anyone. Yes, that's totally yeah. right. And we see yeah. him suddenly um, sneak and supervise him in his class. And when he later is coming to life and he's he's cheering him on as much as he's his contrarian foil in, in, in the movie. But I would have really liked it to just been more paired into those two characters and flush them out more personally. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. Um, can I, do you want to say anything on this, Laura? Okay, well, I, just to mention, you mentioned Farhadi, and I, I do think that Farhadi is an amazing foil to me for, for this movie. I mean, I, A Separation is a movie where 
every there's a massive conflict at the center of a separation and you understand completely what's driving each of the characters in that conflict and you understand and there's no judgment on either any of the characters it's it's you know you can take a side if you want but that's at your own you know that's your own thing you're bringing to the table the the, the movie is a is it just sort of presents it as clearly and as fairly as possible and that's the kind of interpersonal conflict movie that I like. And I felt like in this movie, the kind, I mean, it's not an interpersonal conflict movie, but the conflicts in this movie, I felt, were so hidden and obscured and unclear. And this is coming out in my, like, 20 different readings of how we're going to take this movie. I just, then, I, I was ultimately left feeling basically at sea and not knowing, well, and then basically thinking that the movie, you know, reading it in kind of the most, um, superflu superfluous way, which where it's basically just uh, a bunch of dudes who are really privileged uh, go on a bender and realize that's not going to solve any of their problems. And I feel like that is completely uninteresting to me. It's it's not something I, you know, needed to see dramatized, and um, and it's it's generally not the kind of thing I want to spend two hours watching. It's fine. I mean, it was an in there. I actually enjoyed watching the movie. The, the, the what I'm saying here is all filtered by what I took the ending to be. And I felt I was waiting for the ending to kind of bring it all together and have some kind of punctuation that makes sense of everything that came before it. And that was, since that wasn't there, um, I, I, I sort of came away feeling, um, yeah, unsatisfied. So anyway, but I, I love the comparison to Farhadi because I think if listeners want to see a, a movie that at least in my estimation does it, right i would recommend a separation yeah that's that's one of the reasons why i brought it up i'm yeah. completely on the same yeah. level with you there and i think that is the weakness of this film so it, this film is very close to that in my opinion though but it doesn't get there and it's frustrating as well so i am completely on that level with you 100 i do not think this is a masterpiece by any means and the ending feels a little rushed uh, i wouldn't call it forced i think that it's a rousing finale, and that's why audiences are gravitating towards it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really have the uh, nuance and subtleties of uh, a moral uh, ambiguity or you know that it really needs. And I, I, that's why I started my take being I'm bringing so much context into this that I don't think it's fair because when I critically reevaluated the film after reading your review, I was a little embarrassed by how high I rated it uh, because I just because I think that I still enjoyed it, but yeah. it has a lot of flaws. Paul, I think you've articulated sev seventeen positive things about this movie that are that are excellent, and and you should feel no compunction about enjoying it. I I I, I as I said, I I actually did enjoy it. I my crit criticisms all come from the ending and looking back on it. I I really think it's a you know, it's a well put together movie. It looks great. It's, it's a fun watch. It's there's aspects of it. They're super funny. It's almost like you I would get addition from subtraction. Like if they didn't have all the like pseudo philosophical stuff in the background, maybe I would have just been like, yes, yeah, like the Danish old school. And then I would have been <laughs> totally fine. with it. You know what I mean? Like it's the kind of thing that like it just irritates me sometimes when there's a, you know, half assed engagement with with the kind of, you know, these philosophical ideas. Uh that's just that's just like a pet peeve of mine, I think, ultimately. And um, and I think, yeah, but but that's not a pet peeve for anyone else. So like, yeah, they should 
everyone should enjoy it. And it very well might win the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, which mm -hmm. would be, you know, I think in some respects well-deserved. I mean, I haven't seen the other the other nominees, so. And but, yeah, uh, Vinterberg's even up for Best Director, too, which is pretty. Oh, is he? Yeah. Jeez. Okay, yeah. well, in that case, holy crap. All right. So he cool. beat out he beat out my man Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> that I cannot abide. <laughs> Definitely, the Oscars like the the meta context, and I'm not trying to say this in any disingenuous way, but that definitely impacts the film. I think they were not gonna, yeah, that, and they were not gonna nominate Christopher Nolan. It just he's never. I mean, that guy's gonna he's gonna come away in his career with a lifetime achievement award i think i mean you act as if like they're like the oscars hate nolan but isn't it sort of like we all think that the reason that it got expanded to 10 best pictures was because of dark Knight? No. yeah but it was because people weren't nominating movies that people actually saw like the dark Knight. but it's not because they were like well they really have a shot at getting this <laughs> getting this award i there i don't think it has a shot okay. you could even anyway. you could even say that nolan was one of the reasons why they tried to do that best popular movie category exactly uh, yeah they right quickly rescinded like, and i was we'll actually your... bored i'm for more genre awards or specifically mm -hmm. tailored to uh whatever niche it's in because when you're comparing you know the dark knight to uh la la land to whatever you know you can name a bunch of movies yeah, it's just yeah, like what are you comparing tough. here like how do you even do that it's very hard yeah no that's a good point yeah um, but the way to do it would be to do actually weirdly, I think what the Globes did do, which is comedy or musical yeah. versus drama, not best picture and then best, not best picture. <laughs> you know, that's like, that's like obnoxious. That's like, oh yeah, we'll give you like, you're not even getting a runner up. It's called the second banana award. On, on the, on it's this like note. Oscars, but like Mr. Oscars holding a popcorn. Yeah, exactly. It's like a different one. Yeah, you don't like, get the real Oscar. Yeah, you get the MTV movie award. That's all, that's what it is. It's just the MTV movie award. And it's like, and you get yeah. slime when gonna, you get it. I was going to make the slime Come joke. On, you right? got there oh, first. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Can I just say, uh, so I was reading parts of Ear the Or and, um, and I came across this other quote. Mm. Uh, of his that this has nothing to do with this movie but it's just like incredibly evocative quote just to give people a flavor if they have I've never read Kierkegaard that like she kind of fun to read Kierkegaard I, I have no clue like how deeply philosophical any of this is but it is like really interesting um so the quote is I feel as if I were a piece in a game of chess when my opponent says of it that piece cannot be moved <laughs> and I, I just like, what a what a wild idea that just immediately like brings out all these thick thoughts and feelings. Yeah, I mean he's he's hilarious and bizarre. He's the most romantic existentialist by far. He's always love struck and like freaking out over a real like romantic situation with yeah. Regine, like his famous muse slash uh, the woman he proposed to, and then rescinded the proposal, and so he went through this existential crisis because of that. Um, he rescinded the proposal. Yeah, like, He's like and then I he felt don't like the most selfish me. person and wrote like 40 <laughs> texts about like how you <laughs> can commit on these different levels and what this commitment would mean <laughs> to his genuine affection for the individual. And it, it's bizarre, but he. That's so weird. Justin also rescinded his proposal. Come oh, on. Really? I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> no. Just, <laughs> you gotta you gotta make sure that you gotta have like the like irony meter, the like Tar's irony meter, and you gotta put a little light on because the people in this who are listening to this do not know that you're joking. 
throwing me right under the bus. <laughs> my That's my idea. whole plan with someday this podcast. Though, someday we will talk on this podcast about how I propose. Not today, but someday we will. Um, I'm sorry. You were talking about Kierkegaard and I was being a dummy. Uh, <laughs> I was just making fun of Justin. Now I just want to hear about the proposal, really. But. No, it was not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, here's what I'll say. Let's let's do a round robin just in closing. In closing, I'll just say this because I, I spoke way too long, so I'm going to be cute short. The other round, fun movie. I didn't like it. That's that. <laughs> Laura, then Paul gets the final word. Oh, okay. Um, Flash is a real beauty, but also I had a feminist rage blackout. So that's where I landed. Laura blacked out and then she she didn't see, actually see the ending. Her eyes. Had <laughs> I like, heard there was a dance. <laughs> her eyes were completely black, you know, like they do in, uh, in I don't know, like in the master when they changes Amy Adams eye color to be black. Uh, yeah, exactly. That happened. All right, Paul. Um, last words. I would say uh, effervescent film that has like qualities of greatness and never actually reaches it or actualizes it. Um, but it's still a really entertaining, feel-good film that takes the uh, comedic bro quartet and at least reinvents <laughs> it to a degree that you cannot feel so icky watching it as some yeah. of these other movies. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. yeah. I actually we can't not, ask for perfection from all our movies. I haven't seen <laughs> Old School in a long time, but yeah, it just is, you're probably right that it would you probably feel a little bit icky watching that. oh i'm sure i'd feel yeah. icky but also there's ribbon dancing so that's fun yeah, what's the context in which that happens? they have to go through all these stupid hoops in order oh, to be like a to fraternity a yeah yeah, yeah so <laughs> they have to participate in like a school sport so they do ribbon dancing <laughs> paul when have you seen gold school recently i have not seen old school that recently yeah. but if i had to also sell this or pitch it i would call it like highbrow the hangover <laughs> okay it's like yeah, yeah there you go for sure yeah. Um, not as good as Sideways, though, in my opinion. Uh, I'm a big. I love uh, Sideways. I do. So there we go. That's actually a good comparison, and and I like Sideways more. Of course, there's the alcohol component, but it's also there's a lot of existential, you know, midlife malaise going on in Sideways. And they pared it down to two characters, right? And I think that's stronger. Mm -hmm. Another round, not as good Sideways. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no, but that's a good. But that's also a really good point. the most handsome history teacher you'll ever see. Worth watching it just for Mads's hair. True. It's always it's always falling over his forehead, depending on how much inebriation he has. Yeah, and I read that Mads is actually a jazz ballet dancer in its prime. Oh, what? Yeah. Wow, that's cool. All right, so wrapping up, uh, I guess we'll do round robin on social media stuff, and then we can call it quits. Uh, so, Paul, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Yes, you can find me at on Twitter, Letterboxd, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And by me, I mean Cinematic Underdogs. So my podcast is on all the platforms. Uh, just search it up. And we talk about sports movies in a really intellectual way. Um, so if you're not a huge sports fan, you still might appreciate our little podcast. So yeah. Yeah, let me shout. I'll shout out. Uh Paul, you did a, um, is it Aaron White? Is that? Yeah, Aaron White. From, yeah, from Feeling Film. And then I really enjoyed that episode. You guys talked about a bunch of different chess films. And, um, and I really, I really loved your guys' exchange on computer chess. That was really fun for me. He hated that movie. Holy crap. I thought of you so much watching that. And I was like, I think Justin would love this movie. What's your very Oh my quick... God, he's obsessed. 
He loves computer chess. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I love computer Sometimes chess. Sometimes Justin yeah. watches a movie without me and then gets so excited he has to watch it again the next day with me because he's like, no, no, no. Like, you need to be here with me for this experience. But yeah. I came back from a weekend away and he was yeah. like, I've watched computer chess. Sit down. We're watching computer chess. Yeah, I love I mean, I haven't <laughs> seen it in a while, but um, but yeah, I love it. It's really short, too. Oh, oh you I do just, love that. I just like, I mean, I, I was telling Laura about this at one point. Um, one of my favorite comedic um uh things is just as uh intellectual blowhards mm -hmm. and that i just think and it's a lot of intellectual blowharding happening in that movie and i just find that i find it so funny when people just sit around and pontificate on stuff that they don't know anything about it's the <laughs> best oh i find it it's so funny um but anyway yeah so love computer chess um but props to to aaron and and you for that really wonderful episode of cinematic underdog so Everyone listen to Cinematic Underdogs. Um, we are cows in the field. We are at CowsPod on Twitter, cowspod.wordpress.com on the web. And we don't normally do this, what we just did. I almost want to like never tell people I don't like a movie because it just feels, I don't know, I don't want to be mean or something. And so we, we very rarely get into that kind of type of discourse but paul and i we had a, some exchanges uh on letterbox and so on and and it just kind of came out that like hey let's do a movie where we really disagree and and get into it so it was a fun conversation so thanks for coming paul no problem and you didn't you didn't come off like a misanthrope I, I <laughs> but i understand the like the like feeling that you are being uh just negative nancy yeah, I don't want to be that. You yeah. don't want to yuck somebody's yum. I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. I just, but you know, this, it's just fun sometimes to like try to get clear about why you're, you're not into something. And but this is like perfectly compatible with understanding why other people are into it. And I think there's no need for anyone to feel like someone didn't like some aspect of the movie. Therefore, it's it's sort of not, there's nothing, it's like irredeemable. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's misguided. And, and then, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't go down that path. Um, and I think really the thing is, is what came out of this conversation, Paul, and I really appreciate is that there were a lot of aspects of the movie that I kind of glossed over and not really yeah, thought through. Too. And so you really brought those out. And I, I appreciate that. And it deepened my, um, my, you know, it deepened my appreciation of the film. And I think I see it now um, in a more nuanced way. So, Absolutely. And that's reciprocated because, yeah, I definitely was able to grapple with it in a new light. And deservedly so. And I actually think that by defending something you love, you actually end up liking it more, even if you have Great. a more uh, complicated take. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, we're, let's sign off. See you, everyone. Later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna stop thank recording. You. Yeah, yeah, thanks, that Paul. Fun. That was fun, man. What a life! What a night! What a beautiful, beautiful ride! Don't know where I'm in five, but I'm young and alive. Fuck what they are saying, what a life! I am so thrilled right now, cause I'm popping right now. Don't wanna worry about a thing. But it makes me terrified to be on the other side How long before I go insane? I am so thrilled right now Cause I'm popping right now